Are you prejudiced? It's one of those questions that's going to get you back up instantly. If someone says to you, are you prejudiced? A former football, uh, a former football manager has uh, been in the press this week because trying to defend himself against the charges that he's prejudiced with all his uh, tweets that have been, uh, and, and texts that have been brought out into the public. And if someone to say to you, are you prejudiced? What are you thinking in your head? You're thinking something like this. You're thinking, how dare you? No. I am not prejudiced. I am unbiased in every way. Able to look honestly at the facts and see without favor or prejudice what is the truth. Isn't that what we're thinking? How dare you say I'm prejudiced? But are we so sure about that? Are we so sure that we're so unbiased? Um, if you saw someone reading the Guardian newspaper or the Daily Mirror, what sort of politics do you think they follow? Um, if you were to see someone sitting there with the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail, what do you think are some of the social policies that they, uh, they like to think about? The truth is, is that we tend to buy the papers that kind of... Um, Shade the news stories in the way that we like. We wouldn't like to call it prejudice uh, or maybe even bias, but, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? We, we like to read things that confirm our own prejudices in truth. I'm sure you've noticed as we approach the referendum on independence that uh, as a, a public figure or an expert in some field shares a fact, then the yes campaign and the no campaign basically spin the pronouncement in a way that confirms their position. Have you noticed that? It is actually quite confusing for the genuinely undecided. Uh, what, uh, what are facts and, and what are prejudices and mere opinions? Now there's a bigger thing than political independence that I want us to consider this morning in, in, the, in the brief time that we've got together. And it is this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the most fascinating person in history. He's the most written about person in history. Um, He certainly existed, uh, attested to by both pagan writers and historians as well as Christian eyewitnesses of his life. Very much a human being. Uh, He was born, he grew up, he worked, he rested, he slept, he ate, he drank, he suffered, he died. He had a real human body. He had real human emotions but can we really claim that he was God that's the fundamental question that I think changes everything doesn't it if he's not God in human flesh then Christianity is exploded and it's just a complete load of rubbish a waste of time but if he is God then That has obvious life-changing implications, doesn't it? It's such a significant matter that we've been, uh, on Sunday mornings, working through uh, one of the eyewitness testimonies, the Gospel of Matthew. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And if you um, don't have a Bible with you, hopefully there's a red Bible near you. And if you turn to page 974, you'll see where we've got up to in our working through this gospel. Page 974 in the Church Bibles. 
Matthew chapter 9. Chapter after chapter, Matthew's been laying out his evidence for us to answer this question, who is Jesus? And today we come to the end of a section in his gospel account. And as he does so, he raises another question. Are we able to see the facts clearly? Or are we blinded by prejudice? That's the question he poses. Let's read this section. Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is God's word. Please keep it open as we consider this together. Now, this is the end of a section, as I said. And you can see that by the summary statements that Matthew gives about what the crowds think. So, for instance, turn back with me to the end of chapter 7, back a page. And Jesus has just preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at uh, verse 28, you see the reaction as soon as the sermon finishes. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, that marked the end of this significant section on the teaching of Jesus. And then Matthew goes on the next two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, to say it's not just his words that were amazing, but his deeds, his actions. And and, and he tells us miracle after miracle, which culminate with the miracles we just read, and then the summary of the crowd's reaction in verse 33. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So what did the crowds think of his teaching? Amazing. What did they think of his miracles? Amazing. So Matthew's kind of closing off a section in his account about Jesus. But here's the question. Why crescendo with these two particular miracles? Blind men having their sight restored, and an exorcism of a mute man who then was able to speak. 
Why finish with these two miracles? I mean, just consider what's already come up in chapters 8 and 9. He cures a man with leprosy at the very beginning of the chapter just by touching him. A paralyzed servant is healed with a word from a distance. Uh, it says that Jesus heals many in a sort of a generalized way. And then he, uh, he, he heals a, a woman who had a fever, Peter's mother-in-law, and she's instantly restored and starts serving them. And then Jesus controls uh, this amazing storm that is threatening to kill them. And on the lake, he sort of controls the weather. And with a word, he sounds it and stops it. And then there are these uh, two men, these violent men, demon-possessed men, who, um, with a word from Jesus, are restored and, and returned to peace and wholeness. Then you have Jesus making this amazing statement. Your, your sins are forgiven to this paralyzed man. And he caused this paralyzed man to get up and walk. Uh, then we saw the account of how a woman who had been suffering from a, a terrible problem of bleeding for years and years. And she just really reaches out, touches the hem of his cloak and she's healed. And then he goes into uh, a house where there's this dead girl and he touches her and she is raised to life. And then the two accounts we've just read. Now my question to you is, which order would you have put these events in? Now if you were sort of a movie director and you were planning the script... What order would you put these miracles in? Wouldn't you be thinking, okay, I'm going to start with a sort of the, uh, you know, amazing but, you know, lesser spectacular. And I'm going to build up to the truly awesome at the end. That's what you do as a movie, wouldn't it? You build up to the crescendo. The big fight with the big baddie always happens at the end, doesn't it, in the, in the action movies? The lesser, the lesser guys are dispatched and finally the big boss is taken down. That's how it works, isn't it? But, but... I mean, if you are ordering this, these events, what would you have put towards the ends? What would have been the topper? I, I don't know, stealing a storm is pretty cool, isn't it? Raising a dead girl probably, for me, takes it. But he doesn't finish there, does he? He finishes with uh, the blind man seeing and this mute man being exercised and speaking. Now, why is that? There must be some significance that makes them the crescendo. So I wanted to think about these two accounts and what makes them such a fitting way to finish this section on the acts, the miracles of Jesus in this part of Matthew. And the first thing that we need to see here is that it is the needy blind who see. It is the needy blind who see in verses 27 to 31. So what's so striking about these blind men? They're certainly persistent, aren't they? they? They kept following him. They kept crying out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. The, the sense is they kept doing it. They kept following, kept shouting out. And even when Jesus leaves the street and enters a house, well, uh, they're not deterred, are they? They just push in behind him into the house to see Jesus. They're very persistent, but that's not what's so striking. It's the way that these men address Jesus. Have mercy on us, son of David. These blind men actually have worked out the true identity of Jesus. 
All these miraculous acts of Jesus are there to supply us evidence so that we can understand his true identity, that he is the son of David. Uh, They're they're there to to put in our mouths the question that we heard in the disciples' mouths after Jesus stilled the storm. What kind of man is this? At the start of his gospel, the very first verse of his gospel, he declares uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is the big point that he wants us to see as he lays out his accounts. But really, up to this point, no one has confessed him to be the son of David. Yes, we've had the uh, demon-possessed men, in a sense, sort of almost in, in an involuntary way, declaring, you are the son of God. But this is the first moment where people voluntarily declare he is the son of David. Now, why is it a big deal that he's the son of David? Why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, we need to understand the the first parts of our Bible, which are the the Jewish scriptures, to understand why this is such a big deal. David was the second king of Israel, about 2,000 years before Jesus, I think, roughly. Is that right? Was it a thousand? I should check that fact. That's off the top of my head. Anyway, he was he was the second king of Israel, and he was the most famous king of Israel because God gave him some amazing promises. God promised him this: that one of his descendants would have a unique relationship with God, would be known as the Son of God, and would establish an everlasting kingdom. This is what God promised David. One of your descendants actually will have an everlasting kingdom. He will rule forever. An incredible, stupendous promise. And from that point on then, the sons of David, you eagerly watch, well, who is this descendant of David? Who is this son of David that's going to be on this everlasting throne? But as you read the Old Testament, you have to say that although some kings are better than others, by and large, it's all a complete washout. And by the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, they are actually, the end of the Hebrew Scriptures finishes uh, with them being in exile. They're they're taken away from the promised land. Uh, The leaders of God's people are exiled. The king has his eyes pushed out and he's living in a prison cell in Babylon. All of God's promise of, of an everlasting kingdom looks like it's come to absolutely nothing. That happened in about 586 BC. But the prophets saw another event on the horizon. And they spoke of a day when God himself would come to deliver his people through his Messiah King. God would come through his Messiah King and bring in this everlasting kingdom. Now, many Christmas times we read some very famous verses from Isaiah chapter 9 that make this point. Remember these verses? If you've been in church, you'll have heard them many times. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over 
his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So the prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus coming, saying, do you know what? God has not given up on his promise. He's going to come to deliver his people. He's going to come and do that through his Messiah King. And he'll have these outlandish names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then later on in in Isaiah's prophecy, again, remember, this, this is written sort of, 600, 700 years before the coming of Jesus, uh, we have this amazing prophecy that was read earlier. Let's turn back to it. Keep your finger in, in Matthew 8 and let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 35. Page 719 in the church Bibles. Page 719. Isaiah chapter 35. Because Isaiah lays out here what people could expect to happen when God comes through his Messiah King. How would they know that God has come to do this work? Well, here it is in Isaiah 35. Look at verse 4. Say to those who with fearful hearts, be strong. And do not fear, your God will come to you. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And what will be the uh, evidence? What what, what will be the signs that he's come? We'll look at verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And uh, he goes on in verse 8 to talk about the fact there's going to be this flower-lined highway. At verse 8, a highway called the Way of Holiness. And this highway will reconnect the people with their gods. They will be a people that God ransoms. He will ransom himself, securing Uh, their return home. Look at verse uh, 10. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. There was a sort of a return back to the land from Babylon, a partial fulfillment of this return. But look at verse 10. It can't possibly have been fulfilled in that, can it? It's talking about everlasting joy. When all sorrow and sighing will flee away. Actually, Isaiah is promising that when God comes through his Messiah King, he's going to ransom a people and he's going to save them for all eternity. They're going to be in this everlasting kingdom where there's no more pain and sorrow and sighing. And remember what is the sign of that? How we know it happens? What are we expecting to see? The blind are going to see. The mute are going to shout. Do you see the significance of why Matthew ends with these particular miracles? As you turn back to Matthew chapter 9. Why these are the crescendo? 
These are the signs that God has come to save his people, that their long-awaited promised Messiah, the son of David, has come to ransom a people for himself, to restore them to God, to purchase eternal salvation and joy. This is the sign. That's why this is such a big deal. Now, perhaps it was their knowledge of this prophecy that brought these blind men to Jesus in the first place. They knew their need and they came to him. They came to the Messiah King to, to open their eyes. And I think it, it is, that is the significance of Jesus' question to them in, in chapter 9, verse 28. Do you believe that I am able to do this? See, were they just throwing words about, or did they really believe that Jesus was the son of David in fulfillment of these ancient promises? And what's their answer? Yes, Lord, they replied. Now notice with me the importance of personal faith. He says there, um, verse 29, Then he touched their eyes and he said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. There's a wrong way of understanding faith here. And uh, it's not about um, that they're healed in proportion to the amount of faith they've got. It's not like, okay, you've got 50% faith, so you're only going to see out of one eye. That's not how, it's not about proportionality. It's factuality. It's because you've got this faith in me as the Messiah King. Your sight will be restored. The mistake we can make as we read this is we think, well, it's, it's something about faith. Faith has magical power in it. Well, no, it doesn't. The important thing about faith is not that you have faith. It's what your faith is in or who your faith is in. The power of faith, it only rests on the object that you place your faith in. So I could be totally convinced that, uh, that uh, you know, as I step out onto a frozen lake, that this uh, thin ice is going to hold my substantial weight. I could have absolute confidence it's going to do that. And I stride out on it and I hear cracking noises and I'll go straight down and get very wet and cold. I could have a feeble, uncertain faith that this ice that's one meter thick is going to hold me up and I just about get onto it and it doesn't matter that my faith is feeble or small that amount of ice is going to keep you up you can jump up and down it all day I've done it in America don't do it in Britain it doesn't it doesn't get cold enough in Britain right it does if you go to Canada or North America do you see it's not that you have faith it's what your faith is in and, and it's the fact of their faith in Jesus that is the basis of their healing. It is because of who Jesus is, that he is God's king. He is the Messiah. He is God who has come to them, uh, that their faith results in their physical eyes being opened. Now, I think sometimes we can get quite um, worried about whether we have enough faith or the right sort of faith. But from this section, it seems that what we need is simply this, a clear understanding of our needs. And secondly, that that brings us to Jesus to meet that need. 
a wee bit of faith in that Jesus will save because he's a mighty saviour. He's a faithful Lord. Even the shakiest faith in such a trustworthy person as Jesus will result in you being restored in relationship with God, your sins being forgiven, and that you will enter into that pathway that leads you to everlasting joy, the kingdom that Jesus will bring when he returns. Now, why is it that Jesus kind of ignores them on the street and uh, goes into the house? And why is it that he warns them so sternly that they should keep their mouths shut about what's happened? And I think probably it's because at this time, the time of Jesus, there were so many false political views of what the Messiah was going to do. They were under Roman occupation. I think by and large they had a very political view of what the Messiah was going to do, armies and the like. But for these men to spread the news in that environment would, get, would give Jesus the wrong sort of attention and would get in the way of the plan he'd come to complete. Jesus had not come to be an eye doctor. He had not come to be a politician or a freedom fighter. He had come to be the one who would save his people from their sin, provide the ransom payment to redeem them in his death upon the cross in the place of sinners. But of course, you'll never benefit from this salvation if you think, I don't have a problem. Why are you so hung about sin? I'm not a sinner. I don't have a problem. If you think like that, then you'll see no point to Jesus, will you? There's no need to come to Jesus if you, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, if you don't see yourself in need. Which is what we see in the blind prejudice of the Pharisees. So if the first section it shows us the irony that it's the needy blind uh, who see, the second bit in verse 32-34 shows us that it is the self-satisfied sighted who are blind. Now, Matthew has been quite careful up to now to differentiate between physical illness and um, demon possession. He's he's talked about different categories, people suffering pain, seizures, paralysis, and then on the other hand, people who are demon-possessed. What is unusual about this miracle, what makes it quite unique, is that it's also an exorcism at the same time. It's this evil spirit that's making the man mute. No sooner had Jesus left the house when this man was brought to Jesus. Now, there's no mention of the man's faith in this account. It's not even as if this person uh, came by their own initiative. They were brought to Jesus, verse 32. But Jesus casts out the demon, and this was evidenced by the fact that he speaks. Remember what that reminds us of? Isaiah 35. You'll know when God has come to you to rescue, to receive, because the blind will see and the dumb mute will Speak. That's the significance. Now, we've seen the response of the crowd. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And here's the truth. Nothing like this has ever been seen in the world before or since. That's the point. There's no other credible person in in history credited with such an amazing number and range of miracles. 
Josephus, a Jewish historian of the time, records that Jesus was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. Josephus, not known as a Christian. I find it fascinating that even his enemies did not challenge uh, the, that, that, that Jesus did remarkable things. Their only resort was to actually question the source of power by which he did them. Look at verse 34. This is their response. The Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. These religious men who knew their Bibles, who'd seen so much of the remarkable things that Jesus did, are absolutely blind to their significance. They're blinded by their prejudice. They saw themselves as right before God because of their religious and moral attainments. Um, They pride themselves about their law-keeping and their knowledge. They did not need this Jesus. He didn't conform with their expectations. And so having already predetermined that uh, Jesus was a false pretender, it doesn't matter what evidence would happen before their eyes. Uh, they, they skewed it and said, well, the only reason he can do that is because he's evil. He's in cahoots with the devil. He's demonic. That was their response. And doesn't that strike you as incredibly perverse this morning? I wonder what is your response to this Jesus who taught such amazing things, who did such amazing things. What is your response to him today? As you read Matthew's account, does does Jesus appear to you to be evil? Wicked? We've seen what evil does this week, haven't we? Evil harms, mutilates, crucifies, beheads, and finds joy when other people do such things. It commands that the only way to create peace is is a sword to people's necks and by causing fear. That's what evil does. We've seen that, haven't we? Is that what Jesus did? Is that what Jesus taught? What did Jesus teach? We saw it earlier when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be like your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what Jesus taught. And look what he did. He healed the sick. He comforted and he restored those who were afflicted. He made people whole. But the blind prejudice of the Pharisees could only see someone who was evil. Do you see that so twisted and wrong? Do you know what? If you reject the king that God has sent to be your savior, then there is no way for your sins to be forgiven. There's no hope of salvation. There's no way you can become right with God if you reject the only one that God has provided to achieve that salvation. This blind prejudice is blasphemy and eternally damns you. My non-Christian friends today, what would God have to do to convince you that he had come 
in human flesh to be your savior? What would he have to do to convince you that he'd come in human flesh to save you? Perhaps he would prepare us for his coming by giving promises in history written down hundreds of years before he came, identifying the marks that will, will, will evidence his coming. Things like miracles. And then when he comes in history, he would do those amazing miracles. And then he would die upon a cross. And then he'd be raised from the dead. And then perhaps he would continue to change people's lives down through history and gather them together in a church. And people would come and get baptized as you see today. And he would transform culture and society and lives. My friends, that is what he has done. In human history, that is what he has done in Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? We've seen Matthew's testimony. Do you see it clearly? Or are we blinded by prejudice today? This is what the Bible teaches. God has come in King Jesus. And now, today, is the time to turn from our prejudice and our self-satisfaction in our own moral achievements and our own uh, lives on our own and it's time to put our trust in him as our king and like the blind man to cry out have mercy on me if you haven't done that yet why don't you do it today let's pray